0: Alright, good afternoon everyone. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. If you're new here and don't know me, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you have your Bibles or your phones with you, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel 8. Have you ever wanted something that you weren't supposed to have? In ancient Greek mythology, there's a story about the first human woman on earth. And she's given two gifts by the gods. First is the gift of extreme curiosity. And that actually serves her well as she explores this new world. But in a cruel twist, the gods give her a second gift. This one is a tangible one. It's an ornate wooden container that is sealed shut, which she is told never to open. Now, long story short, lots of things happen. She's tempted over and over time. Um, But ultimately, her ingrained curiosity gets the best of her. And one day, she finally dares to open it. But when she cracks open the lid, it bursts open violently, and with a loud roar out flies all of its forbidden contents. It's every form of vileness, evil, sickness, and even death. And all these things immediately fly away out of her control, escaping out of her window and into the world forever. Now it's a little curious how this story parallels the story of Eve in some ways, being the first human woman, disobeying a divine command, ultimately unleashing evil and death into the world. But all those coincidences aside, the woman in this Greek myth, as you probably know, is Pandora. This is the tale of Pandora's box. And today we use that phrase colloquially to describe something that seems desirable, but in reality is a curse. Something that we earnestly strive to obtain, but once it's acquired, its woes are unleashed and cannot be undone. Pandora had no idea what she was getting into, what she was asking for. She didn't understand the depth of the consequences of her deepest desires until it was too late. Now, if you're new to Zoe, welcome. What we like to do here on Sundays is not to preach through Greek mythology, believe it or not, but to preach through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And right now, we've just kind of started a series on the books of Samuel. and It's going to take us about two years, and as you know, we are eight chapters in today. But just to get you up to speed, we're in the time of the judges, and this is a period of Israel's history that was marked by cycles of rebellion and repentance, a cycle in which for some years everyone would do what was right in his own eyes. That means they would reject God and serve false gods, but then as a result they would come under affliction and oppression from their enemies. But they would cry out to God for deliverance. And ultimately God, the Bible says, would have pity on them. He would have compassion and raise up a judge to lead Israel and deliver them from their enemies. And that would be good. All would be well. But whenever the judge died, they would just turn back. And the Bible says they would become even more corrupt than their fathers. And the cycle would begin again. Now, after generations of this cycle, God raises up this new judge, Samuel, whose life in these books we got to follow from before his conception. He is dedicated to the Lord before birth. He's raised in the temple as a priest. And then, while Israel, because of its sin, experiences some failures in war against the Philistines, ultimately Samuel returns into the story in chapter 7, and he leads them in crying out to God and repenting, and there's great revival, and God miraculously delivers Israel. From the Philistines. And so in the terms of this judge cycle, we've ended chapter 7 on a good note. Samuel the judge is here. God is with him. And there is peace in Israel. They have experienced a spiritual revival. They've repented. And they are all serving God again and walking in all his ways. All is well. And so we come to chapter 8. And I'll read the whole thing. And then we'll pray. First Samuel 8. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for this story that is true and historical, and that you preserve your word for us, that we can learn, that we can be instructed and edified by it and challenged where necessary. So we pray that as we approach this Old Testament narrative that we not take it allegorically, but that it would reveal truth about you and about mankind, and that in that way we would apply it to our lives, to value what you value, and to be changed where you desire to change us, where we need to be changed. So we ask humbly this afternoon that you would do your work through your word and through the preaching, that your Holy Spirit would come and convict our hearts and challenge us and grow us, to lead us to repentance and also to usher us into everlasting joy. So we thank you for your grace and for this time we have together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I cannot emphasize enough how significant this chapter is in Israel's history. 1 Samuel 8 is an important turning point. This chapter begins Israel's transition from a theocracy to a monarchy. That is a nation that is led by God to a nation that is led by a king. The cycle of judges we've talked about is over. In fact, Samuel will be the last judge. And a new series of kings will begin immediately in the coming chapters when Saul, King Saul will be anointed. This chapter marks the end of an era. And it all starts with a demand. We're calling our first Samuel series, After God's Own Heart. And today's passage shows us what is truly in the hearts of men. We'll look today, we'll look at today's important text in three parts. First, the request. Second, the response. And third, the rejection. So let's get into it. First, the request. The request. And what we'll see here is a displeasing demand that reveals the heart of the people. The sinful request reveals the people's sinful hearts. In verse 4, the elders of Israel come together. These are the older men, the leaders of the families and clans and tribes of Israel. They gather together from every corner of the nation to approach Samuel with one heart and one mind, one concern. They come to his home in Ramah, and this is the request they make, which is the hinge on which the entire history of the nation of Israel pivots. Verse 5, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The elders have a problem, and their problem is based on a couple of facts that they're about to propose to Samuel, real, undisputable truths about their situation that motivate their decision. Fact number one, behold, you are old. Okay, that sounds a little rude. Probably don't say that to anyone ever, lesson number one. But you know what? That's just a fact. It's a fact, and it's important for them for this matter, because Samuel is old. Remember, 1 Samuel has had some time jumps. After Samuel was a boy growing up in the temple, we skip over some parts of his life while the camera pans in chapters 4 through 6 to uh, follow the Ark of the Covenant and Israel in battle against the Philistines. We don't hear about Samuel there until chapter 7. And at the beginning, we skip ahead 20 years before Samuel pops up there to lead the nation of Israel in repentance. And then after that, chapter 7 ends, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year through these cities, And those two sentences just summarize his whole life in ministry, his whole adult life, giving no details. And then boom, now behold, he is old. So we don't know exactly how old we've just kind of skipped around in his life uh, as the Bible has told his story, but he's old enough that people are concerned for the future, old enough to worry about a contingency plan. What are we going to do when Samuel is gone? Now, Samuel himself had probably realized his age because in verse one, we see that when he first got old, he had appointed his two sons, Joel and Abijah, to be judges, probably to assist him, train them now, and then to carry on later when he has passed. But this actually leads to the second fact that the elders bring up. The rest of verse five, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. See, the problem is Samuel's sons are nothing like him. We see this in verse 3, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And we know so far that the Lord was with Samuel. The scripture said, God let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. His ways were God's ways and God's ways were his ways. But his sons did not walk in those ways. They were nothing like Samuel. Joel and Abijah, they were judging in Beersheba. That's the far south desert region away from Samuel's circuit in the hill country. And we don't know exactly why. Perhaps Samuel was grieved by how their service developed and he wanted them out of the way. Or perhaps it shows how far they've removed themselves. We don't know. It might actually be significant that they're in Beersheba, which was known as a center of cult religion and was later condemned to destruction by the prophet Amos. But either way, Joel and Abijah are not really in the picture and definitely not in the running, as were the successors to Samuel. Samuel was a man of God. Samuel was a man of prayer. And these, the Bible says, were men of greed. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now keep those words in mind. And I'm going to read for us an excerpt from the law, Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 19. The law of God given to Moses says this. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. This passage in Deuteronomy 16 is talking about appointing people who will judge, be impartial, carry out justice. And it says exactly not to accept bribes and pervert justice. The words are the same. And they do exactly those two things. And Proverbs seventeen twenty three labels these things as evil, saying the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. It's clear that Joel and Abijah are not following in the ways of the Lord, doing the exact opposite in fact and defiling the office of judge. And so here are the facts. The good man is getting old, and the young men are no good. The situation in the elders' eyes was dire. And with these facts on the table, here is the request in verse 5. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations. See, the men of Israel wanted a king not a judge. They didn't want God's temporary deliverers who would just dip in and out throughout history and rescue them just out of their most desperate situations. They wanted a figurehead who could stay with them and keep them from these desperate situations altogether. They were enjoying this period of success and peace, and they wanted an ongoing dynasty of a representative head over them who can maintain the status quo, who could win battles, who could be victorious and lead them in peace. They wanted a new system they could trust. If they had hoped in the institution of the priesthood, that hope was gone after Hophni and Phinehas. If they had hoped in the institution of the judges, that hope was gone with Joel and Abijah. So what now? What institution could they turn to? A king, of course. And this was not some Hail Mary attempts to salvage their nation. It's a thought-out, intentional strategy. Because, note, they're not, they're not trying something unprecedented. They want something tried and true something proven by, as they say, all the other nations. They've got kings, and it works for them. Having a king works. Now, I know you all know this, but we have to remember that until now, the nation of Israel was different. It was supposed to be different from other nations. That was their whole identity, that God set them apart as his own people, his holy nation. They've been led until now by God himself in a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, And his appointed leaders, Moses, Joshua, and then all the judges. But now Israel wants a human king of their own. They don't want to be different. They want a system they can trust. They deny their status as God's holy chosen people, set apart with him as their king. And so verse 6 says, their request displeased Samuel. It grieved him. He heard their petition, and he saw it for the evil that it was. This was not a righteous request coming from contrite and repentant hearts. It was a sinful rejection of God Most High. So Samuel, as he does, brings everything before God in prayer. And God responds to him in verse 7, saying, listen to them. Obey their voice. Give them a king. Now, this isn't God's benevolence or his goodwill to do this. Yet he concedes to their demand, not because they are right, but why? He explains this in verse 8. He says, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. God says they're rejecting me because of who they are. This is who they always have been from day one, from Egypt. He goes all the way back to Egypt to show this. When he first called his people out of slavery into a foreign land so that he could give them a place of promise where they could worship him alone, he had displayed his awesome power in Egypt, where with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, he delivered them with miraculous plagues upon the Egyptians, winning the escape of the Israelites. And then also miraculously parting the Red Sea, winning the Israelites their freedom. But what happened as soon as they were free? Exodus 32, Moses goes up into the mountain to receive the law from God, no less. And down at the bottom of the mountains, what happened? The people did this. They gathered themselves together. They came to Aaron and they said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And they collected the gold that God had provided for them out of Egypt and chose to prostrate themselves before a golden calf, their so-called deliverer. And God says to Samuel, nothing has changed. Because doesn't that story sound familiar? The people of Israel gather together, they come to their leader, and they say, give us a replacement to follow. The same thing they did then in Egypt they are doing now. The evil you are so displeased by, Samuel, is how they were from the start. They were idolatrous, rebellious. That's what's in the hearts of men, and nothing has changed. If you read the book of Judges, Israel's repentance and revivals, that cycle, the revival was always short-lived. After every judge, Israel invariably turned back to their evil ways, rejecting God in favor of other gods, forgetting what he had done. And now this desire for a king is no different. This is not news. It's Israel's MO. So God will accede to their request. In fact, he tells Samuel three times. Verses 7, 9, and 22, obey the voice of the people. And as we will see, it will not be for their good. Now first, we need to stop and examine our own hearts. Because it's easy for us to look at Israel and scoff at their stubbornness. In The same way we read the New Testament and scoff at the Pharisees, not realizing that we as the religious biblical people are to see the Pharisees as a mirror of our own souls. Our own attitudes. And so, the same way as God's chosen people, we can look to the Old Testament, to the nation of Israel, and see them as a mirror that also condemns us because we're characterized by the same obstinance, the same stiff necked, hard hearted stubbornness that we so often deride them for. If it were us, we would say the Israelites were simply doing what they thought was best. It was a good strategy. Since chapter 7, they were walking with God, worshiping him, enjoying a time of peace and success, and they liked it, and that's good. They wanted more of it. They just wanted to keep that good stuff going. And they didn't know how they would do that without Samuel. See, idolatry and rebellion are more subtle sins than we think. Anytime we fail to seek God, even by making our own plans or pursuing our own way without first prayerfully turning to him, We dethrone God and put our own desires in the place of his. Ask yourself this. Do I seek things according to God's will or according to my own desires? How often do we think we know best? We tell God, I know the plans I have for me. Thank you very much. I'll pursue my plans and I'll give you some of the glory on the side as a byproduct. Meanwhile, like we give scraps to satisfy a stray dog. I shared a couple months ago. Not in depth, but uh, how there was a period in my life around 2013 when I felt like I'd hit a wall because I'd achieved everything I'd wanted. It kind of messed me up. I was working in a dream job with people that I really liked. I was making good money. It was an extremely successful company, and they legitimately cared about me personally. And people say, that's, you know, a unicorn. I was at that company. At church, I was locked into a good groove. I was in my 14th straight year of music ministry and my 11th year of college ministry. I was married to the girl of my dreams. We just bought a house in a great neighborhood with great schools for our future kids. We'd actually told our realtor that we wanted to get, this was our first house, the house that we would grow old and die in. And we found it, because judging by the age of our neighbors, that was was the one. We were 45 minutes away from both sets of our parents and all of our siblings, which is the perfect, not too close, but not too far visiting distance. I was truly settled in every aspect of life and fulfillment. Now, you could look at it, as I kind of did, self congratulatorily, and say, well, James, you were just content with what you had. God had blessed you. That's good. Isn't that a good thing? Just contentment in God's gifts. But if I'm honest, it was complacency. It was pride. That's probably why I was starting to get depressed. It wasn't the right response. It wasn't the right motivation. It was only my dream. It was my little corner of the earth that i had carved out for myself to reign over where I could settle down and enjoy life to my standards. And it really messed me up. I got into this bad funk for a while. It was like Nebuchadnezzar, but only by God's grace. I didn't lose my mind and start eating grass and grow my fingernails out into talons. But the fact is, I had everything I thought I wanted. There was no next step for me. And that's not where God wanted me or what he had wanted for me. Only two years after that, we were in Texas. Not to say this is the promised land or anything. Um, It's pretty nice. But almost everything is different now. The only things that carried over from that life to now is my marriage and the music ministry. We're farther from family, which is sad for my kids and their grandparents. Now I'm an independent contractor. I have to continually trust God for my next project. But it's been so much better because I'm constantly reminded that it's not about my kingdom. I feel like there's so much more that we're doing for the Lord here. And I know I still have a long, long way to grow in this, but we've got to live for God's kingdom, not our own. To seek first his kingdom and forget seeking all these other things. So I ask you, are you pursuing your own desires or God's will? When we pray, do we truly ask that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Or do we ask that God's will be done as it is envisioned in my mind? Are we fitting our will to his or seeking to conform his to ours? And is your ultimate goal like mine was to carve out your own little corner of the earth as your individual kingdom where you sit on the throne? Or are we seeking to find our place in God's kingdom where he is enthroned as a rightful king? Here's another question Do you believe that God is good and that he is sovereign? That no matter what you are experiencing right now in terms of need or despair or trial or apparent hopelessness, whatever situation that you're in right now, that God can and does use things for good. Do we trust that God is at work in all these situations, even if our outlook seems bleak, or we don't understand what he's doing or everything's breaking down around us and we can't see the next step? As an aside, later in the Bible, we find a man named Haman. Not Haman, the villain from Esther. Haman, H-E-M-A-N, he man. He's Israel's worship leader. Haman is exalted in scripture as a talented songwriter, musician. He leads the temple worship in the times of King David and King Solomon. Haman was the music leader when the ark is returned to Jerusalem and they all rejoice. He's also known to be a prophet, a seer. And he's exceedingly wise. In fact, the wisdom of Solomon is compared to his when they try to show how wise Solomon is. They say, well, he was even smarter, or, or wiser, excuse me, than Haman. God specifically promised to exalt Haman in First Chronicles and says that's why he was blessed with 14 sons and three daughters. Haman is also the author of Psalm 88. So why do I bring up this random guy? Who is this wise prophet, gifted musician, author of Scripture, exalted by God? Where did he come from? We don't actually know much about his father. In fact, we only know one thing about his dad, that he took bribes and perverted justice in Beersheba. Haman's dad was Joel, Samuel's son. And yet, though Joel rejected God, explicitly violating God's command, and we don't know what happened to him, we don't know if he was ever repentant, but his son Haman somehow became this distinguished, decorated, blessed man of God. Because God can do anything redeem anyone, change any situation. God is sovereign. God is good. And he can use all things for good and to bring him glory. Now, at the same time, God might also allow us to suffer the consequences of our decisions. And this is bad news for Israel. This is our second point. God's response. We see the request. Now we see the response. And the response is that God gives through Samuel a solemn warning to the people about the heart of the human king, the heart of the human king. And here God gives an expose of the harsh realities that this king will bring about, that they so earnestly desire. Now, if you were paying attention to the scripture reading earlier, you might ask, wasn't God talking about an Israelite king all the way back in the law of Moses? Doesn't that make a king over Israel permissible and good? And yes, it turns out in Deuteronomy 17, which Jeff read earlier, it addresses the future kingship of Israel. Those verses even predict that one day when they do ask for a king, it will be because they want to be like the other nations. It's law and prophecy. So, yes, the law prepares for this eventuality of a king in Israel. But the law is also clear. At first, it must be a man of God's choosing. Second, the king must not acquire horses, wives, silver, or gold. And third, He's to make a personal hand copy of the entire law, bind them up in a book that he reads and he studies. And in doing so, he learns to fear God and abide by his word for his entire life and his entire reign. And in doing so, it is possible for a king to be successful in God's eyes. That's what's in the Mosaic law regarding future kings. But the reality is here in 1 Samuel 8, verses 10 through 18, that the heart of a human king left unchanged and unchecked by the holy law of God is no different from the heart of any other man who does not abide in God's word. The king will be a sinner. And what the Mosaic law does for Israel's kings is the same thing that it does for the rest of Israel and the rest of us. It sets the bar so high that no human can fulfill it. No human king, no sinner will fulfill the law for the king. And so appointing a king will never lead to everlasting joy, peace, happiness, but instead will be a costly venture for all his subjects, leading to lives of sacrifice, oppression, and misery. Samuel says, having a king is going to cost you everything. There's one repeated theme in these verses. It's take and take and take. So just glancing down at verses 11 through 13, first there will be conscription. He's going to take your children. He'll take your sons, force them to serve in his army, drive his chariots, make all his weapons and equipment, and work his fields. He'll take your daughters and force them to work as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. The king will enjoy a life of unnecessary and lavish luxury and comforts by taking away your precious daughters and putting them to work. All the king's glory and honor, all his indulgence and extravagance will be achieved over the broken backs of your children." And in verse 14 and 16, there will be confiscation. So first conscription, then confiscation. He'll take your fields and vineyards and orchards, specifically seizing the very best land for himself. In verse 16, he'll even take your property, your human property even, your servants and your animals. All that used to be yours to serve you will now be confiscated to serve the king. And then finally, there's collection, taxes, Everyone's favorite part of any government. Verse 15, from the remainder of your fields, that is the inferior fields that he has not taken, he will require one-tenth of its produce. And in verse 17, he'll take a tenth of your flocks as well. This tenth of all your first fruits, this tithe that was meant to be given to God as an act of worship, will now be taken by your replacement God as an act of compliance. So to cap it all off, verse 17 ends, and you shall be his slaves. After taking everything from you, the king will take you too. You who were previously free, a landowner with slaves of your own even, will now become a slave yourself to this king you asked for. He'll take your freedom, your security, your dignity. If there were a time to think back to Egypt, it's right here. You remember what God delivered you from? Yeah, slavery. In Egypt, and now asking for a king, you're submitting yourself willingly under the yoke of slavery again. These are the ways of a human king. It will cost you everything. And then when it seems like it couldn't get anywhere, Samuel drops a bomb, verse 18, and in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. When all this comes to pass, you will cry out to God, he says. You will cry out in anguish, lament, and suffering, coming to God as you did so many times in the past throughout your history in the book of Judges, begging for relief, and every time God had answered with a deliverer. But this time, God will not take pity. God will send no judge. God will not deliver you. He will not answer. The God you have forsaken will forsake you. You see, Israel, you thought a king would be good. That's all you wanted, one good king. But you're not getting a good king, you're forsaking the one good king. You're getting human kings, sinner kings, kings worse than you could imagine. You could have been, you were a theocracy, one nation under God, truly. But in your sin, you ask for a monarchy and God will hand you over to it. You know what they say, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. The commentator Dale Ralph Davis says, God will sometimes give us our request to our own peril. God's granting our request may not be a sign of his favor, but of our obstinacy. Sometimes God's greatest kindness is in not answering our prayers exactly as we desired. Now, before we go on, lest you think of this as proof that God is vindictive and ungracious, we have to remember that at this point, this is just a warning. It's a necessary warning, and it's an opportunity for Israel to turn back, to come to their senses. They can hear this warning, and they can rescind their request for a king. They can recognize their folly, and they can repent of their sin and yearn again for God alone and cry out to him. And he will hear. But verse 10 says that Samuel gives them all the words of the Lord, and that's these words, and maybe more. They're given full knowledge of what will happen, and it's clearly laid out for them, and that's God's grace. He's giving them the terms and conditions. He's he's giving them the EULA, the End User License Agreement. But like we do on our iPhones, we just hastily scroll past it and click accept. Just like the Surgeon General's warning that appears on every pack of cigarettes, God's warning is disregarded. They didn't listen. They didn't count the cost. Now, sometimes we get so caught up in our ways and plans that we forget to seek God and hear the warnings and heed the warnings in his word. Or we do hear them, but in our stubbornness, we just double down on our own way, thinking that will never happen to me. I'll never get caught. Brothers and sisters, is there something that God's word is actively speaking out against in your life right now? But you're insisting on clinging to that thing, Instead of God's word. Are we actively choosing what is harmful? Even with a full warning in scripture. And we have to be aware that these masters, whatever they are, will take from us. They'll take the best from you. These masters will take away what is good. They will cost you everything. And I think we know this is true in our hearts. We know that a wholehearted investment in our career and pursuit of success will consume all our time and energy and focus, and that our relationships with our families and commitment to one another in the church will suffer. We know that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, that it's a snare that leads to faithlessness, pain, and ruin. We know that our lusts and flirting with adultery will destroy our marriage and devastate our family and our testimony. We know that our resentful, unforgiving hearts will lead only to bitterness, distrust, and division from our brothers. We know that laziness leads to want and poverty. We know that our addictions and habitual sins will only lead down the path of destruction of all the things we know and love. We know our sins will find us out. This is all in Scripture as a warning for us. And yet, we want these things anyway. I speak for myself. We crave the attention from people. We enjoy indulging in things we shouldn't. We enjoy the satisfaction of lashing out and getting revenge on others who have wronged us. We indulge in gossip and slander. We enjoy the attention from our coworker of the opposite sex. We hoard money because we think we, uh, we need it to feel secure or independent or to be proud that we are self-sufficient. We hold on to anger because it feels good to fight and to vent and to blame others for all the wrong in our lives we sinners. We want these things. We enjoy them. And scripture's right there to convict us and say, that's not for you. Do we realize what's happening? That we willingly, even eagerly disregard the warnings of God. And we hold to these counterfeit gods. We cling to these lesser kings. Masters that will only take from us until we're but empty shelves of what, shelves of what God desired us to be. And not only completely spiritually void, but ultimately destined for hell. None of these kings will satisfy. They'll only take and take and take until they have taken our very souls. The word of God speaks clearly. But sometimes, frankly, we'd rather just turn a deaf ear. We're blinded by our sins to choose what is harmful. And so, brothers and sisters, I implore you, and again, I preach to myself, respond To God's word. Pray and plead with God over these things. Cry out to Him for deliverance. Come to Him with repentant and contrite hearts. If there's something in your life right now that you know is opposed to His word, today is the day of repentance. If you want spiritual revival, like we talked about last week, it needs to start with repentance. Because the warning for us continues. If left unchecked, we will go too far. Because Israel shows us that the third and final point is the rejection. The request, the response, and then the rejection. That's the rejection of God as their king. Look at verse 19. Israel refuses to obey Samuel's warning. They say, no, but there shall be a king over us. This response flies in the face of God's grace this is Samuel the prophet, whose words God always upheld and never let fall to the ground. If Samuel warns you of the wrath to come, the wrath is coming. It's not time to hedge your bets and think this is the first time Samuel's going to be wrong. No, here, after a lifetime of wise judgment and faithful prophecy and a 0% failure rate, the people hear his words, know he is right, and still choose to accept it as their fate. Because to them, there's no other way. They refuse to obey him, they flat out tell him no. And we look at this again and we think, how blind they must be, how insolent, how absurd. Brothers and sisters, this is the absurdity of sin. It's the folly of insisting on our own way, believing that there's no other option, believing that we must act because God isn't or can't. The absurdity of sin involves forgetfulness, forgetting God's past faithfulness, not only from Egypt, not only throughout the judges, but even up till the very last chapter, chapter 7, where God miraculously delivered them from the Philistines by his own power. If he proved he could do that and fight their battles and go ahead of them, then why do they need any other king to go do that exact same thing they are asking for? In verse 20, to go out before us and fight our battles. That's what God just did for them in chapter 7. It's not only forgetting God, but replacing him with idols. In this case, it's the return of what we called rabbit foot theology. Like we saw with the Ark of the Covenant in chapter four, now their rabbit foot, instead of being the Ark, is a king. He's going to be their good luck charm who will win all their battles. And so God gives them over to a king. This chapter ends on a sad note. Samuel prays again to God to tell him everything, and God again for the third time tells him, obey their voice, give them a king. And so he sends them home to await the anointing of Israel's first monarch. So quickly, in a single chapter, the page turns on Israel's history. 1 Samuel 8 isn't just the pivot point we called it earlier, it's the beginning of the end for Israel. The sad note that this chapter ends on is the first note of this entire sorrowful symphony that will run through the rest of Israel's future, through the kings and the prophets, because none of the kings will be truly good. Not even the rare so-called good kings, nor will any of their reform or revival endure. Even David, as we know, will fall hard. Solomon's heart will be turned from God by his many wives, and the kingdom ultimately will split in two. And they will be ruled by bad king after bad king. And ultimately, both kingdoms will fall to evil, godless nations, Assyria and Babylon. That's the outcome for 1 Samuel chapter 8. The institution of the priests had failed them. The institution of the judges had failed them. And now their very own attempt at success to emulate the other nations, the institution of kingship, will fail them as well. See, the problem was never their institutions. It was that their hope was in themselves. And that is no hope at all. Psalm one, eighteen, eight through 9 admonishes us, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Brothers and sisters, sin doesn't only tell us that we don't need God. Sin also tells us we need this other thing in place of God. Because it is just as good, if not better, than him. It could accomplish more. It's the magic cure. Could there be any greater heresy than to believe that something is better than God and have us put our trust in that instead? But how often are we likewise not looking to God but to ourselves or to others or to professionals or to the internet for a new strategy, a new model, a new gimmick? Instead of turning to God, we want to discover and subscribe to some novel technique or some newfangled method. We insist on the secret sauce that will fix everything if we just do it that way because that way is right. I'm going to give some examples here. For example, in our politics, are we unable to see how God can still work things out for his good and to our benefit, even if a certain political party is in charge? Or do we gain hope in the future of this country when one person is voted in and lose hope in the future of this country when someone else is voted out? If we trust a party and our staunch alignment with it over the power of God, then our trust is misplaced or when it comes to justice and reform, societal change, it can be desirable and good. But is legalism and activism the end-all, be-all of Christian faithfulness? Do we need to legalize or criminalize X so that God will be able to do Y better? While it might be arguably desirable to legislate morality, that's not the only way for God to work, and definitely not the primary way that God ordained to bring people to him. Biblically speaking, love is that avenue. And we can do that whether or not laws are passed in God's favor. You see what I'm getting at? There's no singular solution, application, or strategy that will broadly cure all of American Christianity's woes. And there's a danger to approach anything with that view. There's a good chance there's something in our lives that is like this, and they can be good, good things that we're just tempted to put too much stock in. We've got a lot of parents here. This is also true of all sorts of parenting methods, disciplinary strategies, extracurricular activities, church programs, family worship styles. Homeschooling even may have its benefits and it can be pursued and implemented effectively and with valid motivations, yes. But neither homeschooling nor any other parenting framework can ever guarantee the outcome of your child or a generation of children when it comes to their salvation, their faithful living, or spiritual maturity. Nor does it mean that the alternative options necessarily condemn them in those areas as well. That if they don't do this, they won't be saved, or live faithfully, or ever be spiritually mature. That's all in God's power, not in ours. It's a warning sign if we look to one strategy as our hope for God's salvation, especially if that makes us look down on others who've chosen differently. The truth is God can and will save all of his children. That is his grace. Sometimes through these decisions, and thankfully, sometimes despite those decisions. And we ought to be incredibly thankful that that is the case. Now, lest you mishear me, don't get me wrong, we are called to faithfulness. We are called to wise judgment. We are called to ask God for wisdom, to seek his will, and to make all decisions prayerfully. And that might be different for each of us in our situations, but we are simply called to obey his word as it instructs us. Just don't place your hope in any of these things as the God-ordained way out, whether it's a method, a person, a system, or a party, because you're just making yourself another rabbit's foot, another idea of what is the best. That's what Israel did. And sure, there are lots and lots of benefits to having a king, but not when it replaces God as king. Not when you forget God's faithfulness and God's sovereignty and turn to the solution as a substitute for faithfulness. So at the end of the day, you have a choice. Who are you going to look to and depend on? Are you going to trust in the Lord with all your heart or are you going to lean on your own understanding? Now here's where it would benefit us to see things from God's perspective. It'll cause us to end on a more hopeful note Because even though these may have been some hard words, it's not all doom and gloom. Because here in the rejection, we actually come to see the heart of God. So in the request, we saw the heart of the people. In the response, we saw the heart of a human king. And in the rejection, we actually come to see the heart of God. What is his heart in this matter? Well, even though request goes against what God desired for his people, God still permitted it. And it's actually still even possible that he will bless it. To give you a sneak peek in chapter 12, which we'll get to in a few weeks, the people finally recognize their sin in asking for a king. At this point, Saul has already been appointed king. He's been anointed. He's even uh, won some battles. But in Samuel's farewell address to Israel, he reminds them of their great wickedness in having asked for a king. And then he tells God to to kind of support him in that, to come with thunder and rain. And guess what? God comes with a tremendous display of thunder and rain to show his disapproval. And in response to this thundering displeasure of God, the people freak out. They become greatly afraid. In fact, they cry out to Samuel, please pray for us. Cry out to God that he won't destroy us, that we may not die, that he won't strike us down. Because, they say, we have added to all our sins this evil that we asked for a king. They finally recognize their sin. But the good news is God can use all this for good. Because Samuel's response in chapter 12 to all of that is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Why? Because even though they've done this evil, it doesn't mean it's the end. The Lord, Samuel says, will not forsake his people. He had a much larger view than this because we know that Saul doesn't succeed. People continue to sin. But the ultimate truth is that God does not forsake his people. Because God all along has been working out his greater master plan of salvation. And no plan of man can thwart the plan of God. In acquiescing to this sinful request for a king, God is actually laying the groundwork for a redemption of mankind because God is going to use this kingship to set up King David, who will then, or King David, excuse me, who will be a man after God's own heart. And we know the rest of the story that he points forward to King Jesus. That ultimately God uses David's lineage to bring glory to himself and accomplish the gospel because through David comes the promised king, Jesus Christ. And going back to Deuteronomy 17, Jesus does fulfill it all because he's not a human king. He is fully man, but he's also fully God. And he fulfills the law by being a man of God's own choosing. God chose him. He was not a hard or a harsh king, but his yoke is easy. His burden is light. He's not a proud king acquiring things for himself, but he lived a life of humility, compassion, and service. And he kept the law perfectly in its entirety not turning from any of god's commandments to the right or to the left never once failing in a single point of the law the only king ever the only person to ever live without sin good news the gospel is that this king jesus the only sinless man to ever live was also fully god the son of god himself and this god man's perfect life satisfied god's righteous requirement his willingness to die a sinner's death on the cross satisfied God's wrath against our sin, the sins of mankind. You and I are all sinners, idolatrous, rebellious. We've raised our hand against the Holy God. And because of our sins, we deserve the penalty of death. But King Jesus bore our sins and his death on the cross and gave to us his righteousness and eternal life. We did nothing to deserve any of this. Nothing we could do or say. No good deed would earn our way to heaven. It was all a free gift. It was willingly given by Jesus as he willingly gave his life. Because while a human king will take and take and take, the divine king will give and give and give. He'll give his life a ransom for many. And he has given us everything. Jesus, our king, has done everything that Israel had wanted its king to do. He's gone before us, he's fought our battles, and he has won. As Martin Luther wrote in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, he says, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Doth ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he and he must win the battle. If you haven't heard this good news before, I'm glad you're with us. Our prayer at Zoe is that your response would be to repent and to believe. God wants you to turn from your sins and turn to him and to believe that Christ died, was buried, and raised again on your behalf for your redemption and that you can be made right with God and have eternal life if you believe these things. And if you serve this king, Christians, we must submit to his authority gladly and wholeheartedly, devoted to him with our entire being and our entire lives, because he is worthy and glorious and good. Jesus is the good king, and his kingdom is forever. This gospel, the good news, ultimately reveals the heart of God. He has paved the way to make us the king, to make us a king, not a king, the one that we demanded, but the king that we needed In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll close here. A sinful request reveals the heart of the people. A warning response reveals the heart of the future king. And the rejection of God turns out to reveal God's own heart, that he is still a God forbearing, patient, kind, and faithful to not forsake his people, but to carry out his plan. Going back to Pandora's box, In Greek mythology, when Pandora unleashes all those evils into the world unwittingly, while she's sitting there and it's silent once again in her house, bewildered, she's full of fear and shock and sorrow, she hears the tiniest noise. She thinks it's coming from the box, and so she gets close to that dreadful box, and she listens, and she hears it again. So timidly, she opens the box, but this time nothing comes spilling out. And so she peers inside, and Greek mythology goes that what she sees inside is hope. Hope remains. Now again, we don't draw any of our theology from Greek myths, but there is something to be seen. That Israel's request, we would say today, colloquially, opens up Pandora's box of woes for the nation and for their future. In sin, they asked for a human king to replace God, and they received much worse than they could have imagined. Centuries of woe and loss and destruction. But there was always a glimmer of hope. There was and always had been hope in a future king. This was God's plan from the beginning. Even when God cursed Adam and Eve for their sin, hope was left to them in a promised offspring who would crush the head of Satan. There was hope for Adam and Eve in a future king. There was the same hope for Israel in the time of Samuel, and there remains for us now the same hope. Their hope and all our hope is in this King, the King Jesus Christ. We pray, Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for giving us a King. Again, not the King who we asked for, not the King we deserved, but the King that was necessary to fulfill your plan and to save your people. Lord, a lot has been said today that is weighty. There's a lot I I feel that I and we need to respond to in our hearts. And so I pray, Lord, that if you are speaking to our hearts now, to have us change something today, and again, not by our own strength, but by your power and abiding in your word, we ask humbly that you would make that change in us. If we have forsaken you as Lord, as God, as King over our lives, and put other things in your place, we pray that you would reveal that to us, convict us of sin, and help us to turn, to turn from that sin, to repent and to return to you. And for those here who might not know you or have heard the gospel, or who have been at church for a while and and have never really understood or are now realizing that they may not be saved, we pray for faith, that you would grant them hearts to believe that the price has been paid, that Jesus Christ makes them right with you. So we pray for your work to be done in our hearts. Give us a few quiet moments just to respond in prayer. And after a few moments, I'll just ask Jeff to lead the closing song. So a few moments of prayer, and when you feel led, go ahead and and stand and prepare for this last song of worship.